Morgan has written two films we've looked at on this podcast. Those would be Rush, which tells the tale of the rivalry of Formula One racers Nicky Lauda and James Hunt, and then the other being Frost Nixon, the story of David Frost's interview with former President Richard Nixon soon after he resigned in the wake of the Watergate scandal. Today, we're going to be looking at another of Peter Morgan's films. This time, it's a film he adapted from a book by the historical novelist Philippa Gregory called The Other Boleyn Girl. In case you're wondering, I'm not talking about the made-for-TV film, also called The Other Bull and Girl, that was released on BBC and was also based on Philippa's book. That version of Philippa Gregory's book was adapted by Philippa Lothorpe. Now, Philippa Lothorpe's small-screen interpretation of Philippa Gregory's book was released in 2003, long before the former Philippa directed a couple episodes of the Netflix original series about Queen Elizabeth II called The Crown. The only reason I mention this is because The Crown's creator is none other than Peter Morgan, the man who directed the 2008 feature film version of The Other Bullen Girl. Releasing in 1,212 theaters, Peter's version of the film attracted an all-star cast including Natalie Portman, Scarlett Johansson, Eric Bana, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Eddie Redmayne. And considering it was made with about a $35 million budget, it did pretty well, raking in over twice that at the box office. So let's dive into England's royal courts in the 16th century as we compare history with the other Boleyn girl. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is based on a true story. Before we travel back to the 16th century, let's set up our two truths in a lie game. Now, if you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three facts. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Anne Boleyn really was charged with incest with her brother George. Number two, King Henry VIII was excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Number three, Catherine of Aragon was beheaded so Henry VIII could marry Anne. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. By a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Now, I wanted to say a big thank you to Heidi Budkes for becoming an official producer of the show. Part of becoming a producer, other than the bonus episodes and early access, is getting to pick a movie to cover. And Heidi picked The Other Boleyn Girl because, as she told me, she fell in love with Philippa Gregory's historical novel first, as well as some of the other great books that Philippa Gregory has written. So thanks again, Heidi, for picking this movie. All right. And with that, let's get to it as we compare history with Hollywood's version of The Other Boleyn Girl. The movie opens with a shot of a field in the English countryside. Laughing and running through the tall grass are three children, who we see playing as we hear voiceover from Sir Thomas Boleyn. After this introductory shot, we then see Sir Thomas walking with his wife, Lady Elizabeth Boleyn, as Thomas explains to her that he received a request for marriage for one of their children, Anne, to William Carey. He goes on to say that he turned down the request and said suggesting Mary. 
Sir Thomas Boleyn is played by Mark Rylance, while Lady Elizabeth Boleyn is played by Kristen Scott Thomas. So let's start with these characters. They're all real. Thomas and Elizabeth Boleyn had three children, two girls and one boy. Well, technically they had five children. So I suppose I could say that during the shot where there should have been five kids playing in the field, but really what it is is that only three of the Boleyn children survived childhood. The two girls were mentioned in the movie here, Anne and Mary. And although the movie doesn't really mention his name at this point, the third child playing in the field was George. Perhaps another reason we only see three kids instead of five is because we don't really know when the movie begins. The movie doesn't really mention a timeline here. And perhaps part of that is because we don't really know exactly when any of the Bolin children were born. It's not like they had birth certificates or that most children are born in centralized areas of medicine like hospitals we have today. With a lack of written documentation proving their birth dates, the best we've been able to do is to piece together clues as to when they might have been born. So let's start with Anne because she's the oldest. Or is she? <laughs> in the movie, we clearly see Natalie Portman's version of Anne Boleyn mentioned that Mary is the younger and prettier, and yet she's to be married first. But we don't really know for sure who was the eldest of the Boleyn children. Most historians agree, though, that Anne was probably born either around 1501 or around 1507. In a book lauded by many to be the most complete biography of Anne Boleyn that we have to date, called The Life and Death of Anne Boleyn, historian and author Eric Ives breaks down some of the best evidence we have for figuring out their birthdays. He does this through letters and dates that we do know. Now, I'd really recommend picking up his book to dig into that into way more depth than we can cover here. But just as a quick example of the type of detective work that Ives does, he mentions a letter that Anne wrote when she did something the movie never shows. She went to court in Brussels in modern-day Belgium to be a maid of honor there. That letter was dated by historian Hugh Paget in a 1981 publication as being written in 1513. And since that position was for a 12- or 13-year-old girl, we can surmise that Anne's birth date was probably 1501. Meanwhile, for Mary, I've suggest that her date of birth was probably 1499, something surmised through her marriage to William Carey. Not to get too far ahead of our story right off the bat here, but it would seem that there were some rumors of King Henry VIII having an affair with both Mary and Elizabeth, Mary's mother. He denied these, saying that he never slept with the mother, thereby suggesting that he did have Mary as a mistress. But that was something he said before Mary's marriage to William Carey in February of 1520, which would suggest Mary was Henry's mistress before her marriage. To add a layer of complexity to all of it, we also know around the time of Mary's marriage to William in 1520, King Henry VIII's mistress was a woman named Elizabeth Blount. Or as historian Eric Ive suggests in his book, perhaps the fact that Mary's mother's name was Elizabeth and the king went from Mary to an Elizabeth, maybe that caused some of the confusion and hence the rumors of an affair between both mother and daughter. But none of that can be conclusively proven without a shadow of a doubt. So, of course, that means there will probably never be an end to the debates and various theories of not only the birth dates of the Bullen children, but really about just about everything we're learning about today. 
Oh, and as a quick side note, even though we don't really see him right away, William Carey is the guy who Mary is going to marry early on in the film. He's played by Benedict Cumberbatch. So anyway, all of that is to suggest that Mary must have been Henry VIII's mistress before marrying William Carey, something that we do actually have dates for. And by extension, it would likely push Mary's birth date to the year 1499, making her older. Now, I know we covered Anne and Mary, but we didn't really mention their brother, George. And like the sisters, there's no solid date of birth here. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Ernin. Now, as we did for the sisters, we must again use a similar means of deduction to gather really what amounts to a best guess, which for George would end up being somewhere around 1504. And just for the educational aspect of it, that brings us to some of the children that the movie does not mention, namely Thomas the Younger and Henry, two potential other children that Sir Thomas Boleyn and Elizabeth had, but unlike Mary, Anne, and George, did not make it through childhood. Since we don't even know the three more famous children's birth dates, you can probably guess how much information we have on the children who did not survive. But Thomas the Younger was likely born after Mary, but before Anne, probably around the year 1500, and likely passing away about that same year. As for Henry, he was probably born after Anne, but before George, somewhere around 1502 or 1503, and he too didn't survive more than a year or two before passing. Going back to the movie, there's a very brief scene where we see King Henry VIII's wife, Catherine of Aragon, deliver a baby, only to hear the physician inform the king that the baby, a boy, was stillborn. Without a male heir, there's a plot afoot by Sir Thomas and the Duke of Norfolk, who's played by David Morrissey, to introduce the king to a new mistress, Anne. To do that, according to the movie at least, they invite Eric Bana's version of King Henry VIII to the Bullen home for a hunt. Just before the hunt, Henry is introduced to Anne, who, as we find out later, ends up pushing the hunt a little bit too far, causing Henry to fall down a deep ravine and hurting himself much to the despair of Sir Thomas and the Duke of Norfolk. 
Well, there's bits of truth in there. Unfortunately, I just couldn't find anything to suggest that the scene with the hunt and Anne meeting the king this early on was true. But let's learn about some of the facts that we do know to help set the scene. It is true that Catherine of Aragon was the first wife of King Henry VIII. They were married in June of 1509, just a couple months after King Henry VII died, leaving Henry VIII to succeed him. At that time, Henry VIII was 17, while Catherine was 23. The movie is also correct in showing that Catherine had a stillborn baby. That was on January 31st, 1510, but unlike the movie, it was a baby girl. And unlike the movie, it wasn't after this one stillborn child that Henry VIII was all of a sudden desperate to have a male heir. After the first stillborn baby girl, Catherine got pregnant again, and about a year later, Catherine had another baby. That was in 1511, January 1st, New Year's Day, actually. This time, it was a boy. They named him Henry, and the king and queen rejoiced with their new heir. Joy turned to sadness when the baby boy passed away. Suddenly, just 52 days later. I can't imagine what sort of pain that must have caused to lose two children so close in succession like that. But sadly, it didn't stop there. Two years later, in 1513, Catherine had another boy, also stillborn. Then two years later, another stillborn baby boy. In 1516, Catherine gave birth to another child. This time, the baby survived, but being a girl, they named her Mary. It wasn't a male heir. There would be two more failed pregnancies. Another miscarriage in 1517, followed by a girl who died just a few hours after birth in 1518. In all, Catherine was pregnant seven times. One of them, Mary, survived. The untold amount of heartache and grief that must have caused... Even with the baby girl to help brighten the hallways, the one surviving child was overshadowed with the loss of so many. Henry and Catherine's relationship was on the rocks. Oh, and as a side note, in the movie, when we're introduced to David Morrissey's version of the Duke of Norfolk, really throughout the movie, we never really learn his real name. He's just the Duke of Norfolk. And for the most part, the movie makes it seem like he's the connection between the Boleyn family and King Henry VIII. So let's start with his name. Probably the reason why the movie doesn't mention his name is because his real name was the same as Anne's father, Thomas. So it would probably just be a little bit confusing to have two Thomases there. Now, the real Duke of Norfolk was Thomas Howard, the third Duke of Norfolk, and the brother of Elizabeth Howard, the woman that Sir Thomas Boleyn married. Oh, and from everything I read, it was not really the Duke of Norfolk who was behind the politically motivated moves for the Boleyn family. The movie makes it seem like Anne's father, Thomas, is a rather meek person who goes along with the Duke's suggestions. But from my research, it seems like really most of those politically motivated negotiations to use Anne and Mary to increase their family's power and position was actually instigated by Sir Thomas Boleyn himself. Back in the movie, despite the failed hunt, it seems that Scarlett Johansson's version of Mary made an impression on the king. So the two sisters are invited to court, while Mary's husband, William Carey, is invited to the Privy Council, basically the king's private council, the inner circle for the king. While we don't know the details of really how this happened, the basic gist is true. As we learned earlier, Mary and William Carey were married in 1520, we don't know exact dates, but by 1522, both Boleyn girls were at court, and Mary was Henry VIII's mistress. Meanwhile, for as long as Henry VIII had Mary as a mistress, 
Mary's husband, William Carey, profited by receiving land and titles from the king. We know that Mary had a couple children around this time. Catherine Carey was born in 1524, while Henry Carey was born in 1526, but it's impossible to know if they were her husband's children or if they were King Henry VIII's children. That brings us to another moment back in the film, when Natalie Portman's version of Anne Boleyn secretly marries a man named Henry Percy. He's played by Oliver Coleman in the film. In the movie, this secret marriage between Henry and Anne really upsets the Duke of Norfolk, who insists that Henry return to Northumberland, where he marries the girl that he was pre-contracted to wed, Mary Talbot. Meanwhile, Anne is to be sent to France to stay in the Queen's court there until she's learned her lesson. Again, there's truth in these events, but it's not quite the order that the movie portrays them, and in fact, there's quite a bit more that the movie leaves out. Do you remember earlier when we learned about the historian Hugh Paget dating a letter from Anne in 1513? She was in Brussels then as a maid of honor in the court there. She was sent away from England not because she secretly married Henry Percy, but rather because Sir Thomas, her father, wanted his daughter to receive an education, a great education, so she could go far in the courts of England. At that point, Anne was almost, or just barely, a teenager at about 12 or 13 years old, and she stayed with Margaret of Austria while she attended one of Europe's best finishing schools at the time. Sir Thomas had secured this placement in one of the known world's best schools, thanks to himself being posted in Margaret's court as a diplomat to England a couple years earlier. So, basically, he'd made connections and then used those to help Anne's education, now, there's some mystery as to the exact whereabouts of the Boleyn sisters, but it would seem that Anne was not the only one who left England. In 1514, both Anne and her sister Mary were most likely a part of Mary Tudor's entourage when the latter was married to King Louis XII of France. Now, that's a lot of Mary, so let's break this down. Mary Tudor was the sister of King Henry VIII, and in an attempt to form some sort of peace between England and France, the two were wed when Mary was only 18. By the two, I mean Mary and King Louis XII. Now, on the other hand, King Louis Twelfth of France was 52, while Mary was 18. So that marriage really only lasted for 82 days until... Louis Twelfth died on January 1st, 1515. So King Henry VIII, after this, sent the Duke of Suffolk, a man named Charles Brandon, to France to retrieve his sister. That would also mean that the entourage, including what we can assume would be the two Boleyn girls, were also to be retrieved. Now, things didn't quite go as planned, and instead, Charles Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk, ended up sleeping with Mary Tudor before the two were actually married. That didn't really make Henry too happy, but that's a story for another day. For our purposes, we know Mary Tudor and Charles Brandon returned to England in April of 1515. Now, some historians think that perhaps Mary Boleyn returned to England with them while Anne stayed in France. In fact, she stayed there until returning to England in 1522 at the request of her father, who set her up to marry a man named James Butler. So, from 1513 until 1522. That's about nine years away from England getting an education. That's quite a bit different than the, what the movie makes it seem. Not only that, but it's also before the events that we see in the movie. Remember when Mary Boleyn was married to William Carey in 1520? Well, that happened after Mary returned to England. Anne may not have been back yet, though, which 
probably means that she wouldn't have been helping her sister get ready for the wedding. Oh, and it seemed that while Mary was in France, she had a bit of an affair with King Francis I of France. In fact, some historians suggest that this relationship with Francis could have really been the catalyst for Mary's eventual being, eventually being sent back to England in disgrace, something that horrified her parents. It would seem that Mary wasn't really quite the shy girl that Scarlett Johansson portrays on screen. As for Anne, the marriage to James Butler didn't happen, although the movie's plotline of a secret marriage to Henry Percy is true. At least, a lot of historians believe that it was rumored to have happened. It was in secret, after all, so we don't really know for sure. But it would seem that the rumor also consisted of the marriage not being consummated, like the movie shows. But regardless, Henry Percy did end up returning to Northumberland, where he married the girl that he had been betrothed to, Mary Talbot. As for Anne, we already learned this, but it was after her time in France. So this wasn't the catalyst for her being sent away from England, but she was sent to the Boleyn family's countryside estate away from court after this supposed rumor of secretly marrying Henry Percy. Then at some point, we don't really know how much later, she returned to court. Back in the movie, Anne catches the eye of King Henry VIII, who insists on doing whatever it takes to bed her. That includes annulling his marriage to Catherine. Unfortunately for the king, though, there's not really a good reason for annulling the marriage, so the Catholic Church won't approve of his plan. Not deterred, Henry goes so far as to break off England's relationship with the Catholic Church so he can dismiss Catherine and marry Anne. As we've learned so far, there's a lot of details we just don't know. So while it's not likely to have happened the way the movie shows, the basic framework of the story is accurate. We already learned about the difficulties that Henry and Catherine had having children, and that put a massive strain on the marriage. By 1524, most historians believe Henry and Catherine had stopped having sexual relations. Basically, if Henry was to have an heir, it was not going to be with Catherine. Unfortunately, we just don't know the specifics of how Anne caught King Henry's eye. After all, that's why stories like The Other Boleyn Girl are so great, because they help us fill in some of the gaps in a creative way to see things how they might have been. It's very likely, though, that it was the great education that Anne received abroad that made her stand out from the other women in court. What we do know is that Anne used what she had learned in her time away from England to charm men in the court, and that most likely included Henry VIII, who was smitten with her. Historians have debated about exactly when Henry started to pursue Anne, but it was probably either in late 1525 or early 1526. Just like the movie shows, Anne played hard to get, and they'd only made Henry pursue her even more. And again, just like the movie shows, Henry showered Anne with gifts. It was a sort of cat-and-mouse game where Anne's virginity was the prize for Henry. Now, in the movie, Anne's playing hard to get is so that Henry will marry her before sleeping with her, making her the queen. We don't really know if this was Anne's true reasons, but regardless, it would seem that the reason for Henry and Anne wanting to wait until they were married was because Henry wanted to ensure any child he had with Anne would hold a legitimate claim to the throne. Since he wasn't going to have an heir with Catherine, he was hoping he'd have an heir with Anne. For that to happen, Anne would have to be his wife. For that to happen, he'd have to get rid of Catherine. For that to happen, he couldn't just divorce Catherine. 
that would go against both the law of the time and the church. And the church, of course, weighed heavily on the law of the land those days. Henry had to find a way to legally pretend like the marriage to Catherine wasn't legal to begin with, to annul the marriage. The movie implies these things correctly, but it doesn't really go into much depth about what exactly happened. So basically, before Catherine married Henry, she was married to a man named Arthur. He was the Prince of Wales and the older brother of King Henry VIII. Soon after their marriage, both Arthur and Catherine came down with what many historians consider to be the sweating sickness. We don't really know much about exactly what this sort of disease was, but we know that it was highly contagious and people would start sweating, since the name, and then often die within hours. Catherine managed to survive the sickness, but Arthur did not. He succumbed, passing away just five months after marrying Catherine. Had the sickness kept Catherine and Arthur from consummating their marriage? Catherine insisted that it did, and that when she married King Henry VIII seven years later on June 11, 1509, she went to Henry's bed, a virgin. If that's true, we'll never know. But it would seem that for years, Henry apparently never complained about whether or not Catherine was a virgin. Then, after being smitten with Anne, he used this as a way of legally getting out of the marriage with Catherine. If she wasn't a virgin, then that would mean her marriage to Henry was illegal in the eyes of both God and the law. In particular, some historians believe Henry thought that his marriage to Catherine was cursed by God. In Leviticus 20, verse 21, the Bible says, quote, And if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless, end quote. So Henry tried to get his marriage to Catherine annulled on the grounds that she had actually consummated her marriage to Arthur, Henry's brother, making her marriage to Henry a sin against God. Henry used the verse from Leviticus as proof, along with the fact that Catherine had yet to produce a male heir. Never mind the fact that Henry and Catherine did have a child together. Remember the girl, Mary? Apparently, since she's a girl and not a male heir to the throne like Henry wanted, she didn't count. In all honesty... We don't really know if Henry truly believed this or if he was just using this as an excuse, but it does seem very convenient that after so many years and failed pregnancies, Henry all of a sudden was calling into question the validity of his marriage due to Catherine's former marriage. The Catholic Church in Rome didn't buy it. Henry's own sister, Mary Tudor, didn't buy it. Well, in truth, it was a little bit more complex than that, with the Pope being the prisoner of Catherine's nephew at the time. But quite honestly, this story could be an entire podcast series in and of itself. So just like the movie shows, King Henry VIII did something that must have sent shockwaves through the world at the time. He separated England from the Catholic Church. Now, we haven't talked about him yet, and he's not in the movie at all, but one of the major players in all of this was Cardinal Thomas Wolsey. As basically the voice of the Catholic Church in England, he was King Henry VIII's right-hand man. So when the king wanted to get an annulment from the church for his marriage to Catherine, it was Cardinal Wolsey who tried to get it from the Pope for the king. Well, technically, the king tried to get around Wolsey at first, but that failed, and so he had to go through Wolsey. But again, this whole story could be an entire podcast series by itself. Now, Cardinal Wolsey failed to get the annulment for the king, and in October of 1529, suddenly he fell out of favor with the king. 
He was charged with uh, pre munire, which is Latin and basically is a law that forbids papal jurisdiction against the English monarch. Essentially, after years of working side by side, all of a sudden, King Henry VIII turned on Cardinal Wolsey. That didn't last for long, though, and Henry pardoned Wolsey in 1530. But then in November of 1530, the same year, Henry again turned on Wolsey and charged him with treason, this time condemning him to die. Wolsey died before the charges went to trial. With Wolsey out of the way, King Henry VIII took on all matters of state that were previously overseen by him, and it cleared the way for Henry to continue with the annulment. Rome still refused to back the annulment, though, and no doubt was growing even more suspicious of Henry's tactics after Wolsey fell from grace so quickly. Toward the end of 1532, King Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn were married in a secret service with another public wedding in early 1533, with Anne being crowned queen on June 1st, 1533. It didn't take long for Anne to get pregnant, but the Catholic Church still didn't recognize the marriage, which could still be putting into question the legitimacy of any children between Henry and Anne. So between the years of 1532 and 1534, the English Parliament passed laws that enacted the English Reformation. Essentially, the Church of England broke off from the Catholic Church and instituted Henry as the supreme head of the Church of England. All of a sudden, England was no longer part of the Catholic Church. They were their own church, albeit with pretty much the same beliefs. The English Reformation could, again, be an entire podcast in and of itself, and there's plenty of theological differentiations between the Church of England and the Catholic Church that came out of this. I know that I said they're pretty much the same beliefs. What I meant by that was, essentially, a lot of historians agree that, at least initially, this break was very political instead of theological, and then as time went on, those theological differences started to spread and that gap widened. Essentially, though, no longer beholden to Rome, King Henry VIII didn't need the Catholic Church permission to not only annul his own marriage, but to make his marriage with Anne legitimate. He could do that all by himself now. Meanwhile, the acts passed by Parliament both gave Henry the power over the Church of England, and it simultaneously made Mary, the daughter of Henry and Catherine, an illegitimate child. She was no longer the heir. As a result of all of this, the Catholic Church, rather unsurprisingly, excommunicated Henry, basically kicked him out of the church. Back in the movie, after finally getting what she wanted, being Queen of England, things start to turn sour for Anne. The story in the movie suggests that it began when Anne got pregnant, but herself had a miscarriage. Like most of the things we've learned about today, the framework of the story is accurate, but there's a lot more that the movie leaves out. The very same education that led to Anne's standing out from the other women in court that many historians believe led Henry to noticing her to begin with might have been her downfall. It's probably not too surprising to learn that women of the day were expected to be obedient to their husbands. Perhaps never more was that true than the queen of the king. But Anne was a strong, independent woman who wasn't too keen on playing the obedient wife role. She wanted to be more involved in the politics of the day instead of basically doing Henry's bidding. As you can probably expect, Henry didn't really like that. And while we don't know the details, I'm guessing that there were plenty of fights that ensued as a result. There was one thing that Anne knew she had to do, though. And as the movie correctly implies, everyone 
would have known that Henry wanted a male heir and was expected to deliver one. Soon after their marriage, whether by the secret wedding at the end of 1532 or the public one in 1533, Anne got pregnant and on September 7th, 1533, she gave birth to their first child. Henry was so certain it would be a boy. After all, the curse that Catherine had caused was the reason he couldn't have a boy, right? They even went so far as to write out letters announcing the new prince and playing a massive joust in celebration of the new heir to the throne. Well, they had a healthy baby. It just wasn't a boy. It was a girl, Elizabeth. Some historians suggest that Henry wasn't only displeased with this, but he went so far as to assume Anne's delivering a girl was an insult from Anne. She was refusing to be the obedient wife that she was supposed to be, and now she was refusing to give him the boy that he wanted. As if she could control it, right? We don't know the specific dates, but by December of 1534, we know of documents that suggest Henry was trying to find a way out of the marriage with Anne. Like he did with Catherine, Henry seemed to have moved on from Anne. This time, it was for a woman named Jane Seymour who moved into new quarters the king could access. Basically, everyone knew she was the king's new mistress. But legally, Anne was still Henry's wife, so he had to do something about that. Now, in the movie, after losing the baby and knowing that's the reason why Henry ridded himself of Catherine, Natalie Portman's version of Anne panics and tries to get her brother, George, to sleep with her in an attempt to get pregnant again and pretend like she never lost the baby. They don't actually sleep together, but that doesn't really matter. No one believes her, and ultimately Anne is beheaded for incest and treason, the latter of which being a charge for a queen to sleep with someone other than the king. Now, we don't really know if that's what happened. There's a lot of controversy, debates, and theories among historians that have gone on over the centuries, and I'm not going to resolve it in this one single podcast episode, but... There are a good number of historians who believe the plot to get rid of Anne was actually orchestrated by Thomas Cromwell. We haven't talked much about him, or at all, really, but after Cardinal Wolsey was done away with when England parted from the Catholic Church, Thomas Cromwell was sort of put in his place. I say sort of because it's not like the Catholic Church had a replacement cardinal for Wolsey. After all, England broke away from the Catholic Church. But with Henry taking over as the supreme head of the Church of England, Thomas Cromwell rose to power. He was initially an ally of Anne's, but somewhere along the way, they lost that friendship. Some historians point to a sermon delivered on April 2nd, 1536 by Anne's chaplain, who preached on Anne's instruction, a rather damning sermon against Thomas Cromwell. Perhaps this was the real reason Anne Boleyn was eventually killed. If Thomas Cromwell wanted to avoid having Henry and or Anne turn on him like they did to Wolsey, he instead turned on Anne and orchestrated a plot to do away with both her and her brother, who was in the king's court, single-handedly shifting the Boleyn family from one of the most influential families on the crown to one in disgrace. Of course, these are things that are hard to prove one way or another, hence the debates and countless uh, theories that we have over the centuries. Anyway, the charges that the movie shows are correct, although there's more to the story. What we do know is that it all came crashing down for Anne Boleyn between April 30th and May 2nd of 1536, when a total of five men, including George, were arrested for sleeping with her. Since she was the queen, that was treason, 
and punishable by death. On the other side, Anne was punished for both incest, since one of the men arrested was her brother, one arrested for sleeping with her, and then also for treason, because sleeping with someone other than the king, since she was the queen, was grounds for treason. And so it was that on May 2nd, Anne Boleyn, the Queen of England, was arrested and imprisoned in the Tower of London. The very last letter from Anne Boleyn was one that she wrote to Henry after being imprisoned. That's actually part of the bonus episode for producers, if you're curious to hear it. There really wasn't much evidence to prove anything, but that didn't really matter. Unlike the prolonged and political affair that Henry had to go through to annul his marriage to Catherine, he no longer had to answer to the Catholic Church. He had his own church now. The trial was a short one. On May 14th, Henry's marriage to Anne was declared null and void. On May 17, 1536, George Boleyn and the four other men arrested for sleeping with the Queen were executed. Two days later, it was Anne's turn. To the very end, Anne swore she had never been unfaithful to the King. If there's a difference in the movie with what happened, what really happened, it's that up until the end, the movie makes it seem like there might be a chance for Anne. We see Natalie Portman's version of Anne Boleyn give a speech on the wooden platform just before we realize what's going to happen. Then, with her sister Mary in the crowd, she, Mary, gets a letter from King Henry that explains, He let Mary live, but, quote, May God have mercy on Anne's soul, end quote. In truth, there couldn't have been much hope at that point. Still, reports from the time suggest that Anne maintained her spirit and didn't really look like someone who was about to die. At about 8 a.m. on the morning of May 19, 1536, Anne Boleyn, wearing a red petticoat atop a dark gray gown trimmed in fur, climbed up on the scaffold aided by two women and gave this speech. Good Christian people, I am come hither to die, for according to the law and by the law I am judged to die. And therefore, I will speak nothing against it. I am come hither to accuse no man, nor to speak anything of that whereof I am accused and condemned to die. But I pray God save the king, and send him long to reign over you. For a gentler, nor more merciful prince was there never. And to me he was ever a good, a gentle, and sovereign lord. And if any person will meddle my cause, I require them to judge the best. And thus I take my leave of the world and of you, and I heartily desire you all to pray for me. O Lord, have mercy on me. To God I commend my soul. Then she bade farewell to her attendants who were weeping, and kneeling down, Anne kept repeating, Jesus, receive my soul. O Lord God, have pity on my soul. Over and over again. Just like the movie shows, with a single swing of the sword, it was done. Two weeks after her death, the French poet Lancelot de Carle wrote a poem which captured the moment of her execution with these words. She gracefully addressed the people from the scaffold with a voice somewhat overcome by weakness, but which gathered strength as she went on. She begged her hearers to forgive her if she had not used them all with becoming gentleness and asked for their prayers. 
It was needless, she said, to relate why she was there, but she prayed the judge of all the world to have compassion on those who had condemned her, and she begged them to pray for the king, in whom she had always found great kindness, fear of God, and love of his subjects. The spectators could not refrain from tears. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. Wow, there's so much to unpack with the story of King Henry VIII. Yeah, we talked a little bit about his first wife, Catherine, and his second wife, Anne, but we didn't even get to talk about his other four wives after Anne, and the fact that Anne was not the only one of his wives to get executed. And that's not even to mention that bit of text on screen at the end talking about Henry and Anne's daughter, Elizabeth. It really is true that Elizabeth I, who went on to be the last monarch of the Tudor household and begin what we now know as the Elizabethan era, was the daughter of King Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. As I mentioned, this topic could be an entire podcast series in and of itself, but hopefully you've learned something new and maybe you've gotten the itch to start digging in a little bit deeper into the story. To do that, I recommend reading Philippa Gregory's book that the movie is based on. It's also called The Other Boleyn Girl, and while it is more of a historical novel that fictionalizes some things, it's still a great read and very entertaining. Another amazing book that is more on the historical side is the biography of Anne Boleyn that I mentioned in the episode, The Life and Death of Anne Boleyn by Eric Ives. I'll add links to those books and plenty more resources to begin your deep dive into Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, and her sister Mary over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Before we get to the answer to the two truths and a lie game, here is another five-star review. This one comes from Rickenheimer over on Apple Podcasts, and it's titled Absolutely Fantastic. If you like movies and history, look no further. This is such a well-produced show and so very entertaining. It's interesting to see the true details of shows you've considered to be gospel. Also, just as important as content for me, Dan's voice is very easy to listen to. Everyone I've told are now faithful followers. Just try one. Wow, thank you so much. Thank you so much for not only listening and taking the time to leave a review, but to also let others know about the show. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Rickenheimer. And I wanted to say thank you again to Heidi for becoming an official producer, helping me keep the lights here on at the show, and for picking this movie. I really hope that you learned something new and enjoyed it. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Anne Boleyn really was charged with incest with her brother George. Number two, King Henry VIII was excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Number three, Catherine of Aragon was beheaded so Henry VIII could marry Anne. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number three. Although Henry did go to great lengths to have his marriage to Catherine annulled, he didn't execute her like he did Anne Boleyn. Although, you know, we really didn't get the chance to follow Catherine's story after her marriage to Henry was annulled. She was banished from England until her death on January 7th, 1536. In fact, I know we're at the end of the episode here, but here's a quick little bonus. This is the final letter from Catherine written to King Henry VIII in December of 1535, as some historians suggest, with a sense that death is nigh. My most dear lord, king, and husband, 
the hour of my death now drawing on. The tender love I owe you forceth me, my case being such, to commend myself to you, and to put you in remembrance with a few words of the health and safeguard of your soul, which you ought to prefer before all worldly matters, and before the care and pampering of your body, for the which you have cast me into many calamities, and yourself into many troubles. For my part, I pardon you everything, and I wish to devoutly pray God that he will pardon you also. For the rest, I commend unto you our daughter Mary, beseeching you to be a good father unto her, as I have heretofore desired. I entreat you also, on behalf of my maids, to give them marriage portions, which is not much, they being but three. For all my other servants, I solicit the wages due them, and a year more, lest they be unprovided for. Lastly, I make this vow, that mine eyes desire you above all things. Catherine the Queen Even after everything, she forgave Henry. She put everyone else before herself, even making sure her servants were provided for, and still referred to Henry as her husband and herself as queen. So what are your thoughts about the Bolin girls and really everything we've talked about so far? Or maybe even some of the countless other theories and facts that we didn't even have a chance to chat about today. Consider this your official invitation to join the Based on a True Story Facebook group and share your thoughts with the community. You can also find me on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B, or you can unlock bonus episodes by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And of course, you can find the entire archive of episodes for free right now over at the show's home on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.